Computer, initialize Holosuite. Holosuite Media. Greetings and felicitations. Hip, hip, hoorah. Tally ho. Because for those who do not know, I am Nayar. I'm Kavora. And you are my little Georgia Peach. And you're my Puddin'. <laughs> Alright, so let's go through Starlog Magazine's issues 3 and 4. Now, previously, we discussed the non-Star Trek articles in these magazines. Check out our previous episode for that. I mean, we talked about Six Million Dollar Man, Space 1999, a whole bunch of other great stuff from 1977. And so this time, we're going to go through just the Star Trek articles in these two magazines. And there's quite a bit. There is, because Starlog always had a lot of Star Trek. I mean, that's basically what inspired this magazine. So Starlog Magazine, issue number three, cover date January 1997. What do you think about the Jack Rickard cover art? I love it. I mean, it's caricatures because that's what he's known for. But he's got he's got all the likenesses and he's got the the comedy just like he likes to do. And the colors are wonderful. It's a great cover. Everyone knows his work from Mad Magazine. So essentially, this is the Star Trek actors at a Star Trek convention. So they're hanging off the chandelier, and we see fans trying to get at them on the bottom. And all the fans are holding up different signs. It's Yeah, it's like the actors are, like, <laughs> desperately trying to get away from the fans. But, I mean, at least Uhura's smiling, though. She likes it. Star Trek lives. Build more Star Trek. Or for Captain. Warp 5. Beam me up. So this particular issue has a special section entitled Conventions. Star Trek Con History. Rare Photo Scrapbook. Wild, Weird, and Wonderful Personal Appearances, Shatner, Nimoy, Kelly, Doohan, Nichols, Takei, Koenig, more. So that's what the cover tells us about what's inside here. So as we open up the first page, there's an advertisement for the record album Gene Roddenberry Inside Star Trek. This is the one and only Star Trek album, narrated by Gene Roddenberry, the first behind-the-scenes glimpse of the Star Trek Starship Enterprise. Gene Roddenberry, creator, producer, and warp drive force behind Star Trek, now reveals in his own words for the first time ever all the fascinating input that went into the making of this legendary TV show. A brand new record album, Inside Star Trek, featuring... William Shatner as Captain Kirk, DeForest Kelly as Dr. McCoy, Mark Leonard as Sarek, Spock's father, and renowned scientist author Dr. Isaac Asimov as himself. Inside Star Trek, the behind-the-scenes stories of the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. Inside Star Trek, narrated by Gene Roddenberry on Columbia Records and Tapes. Now, I had that record album as a kid. I know you it, said you oh, did. <laughs> and I remember getting it, expecting it to be music from Star Trek. And when I got it, it was them talking. And it wasn't a story. And I'm like, wait a second. This isn't a story. This isn't music. This is just behind the scenes stuff. And I was too young to really appreciate it. I, re I didn't want to hear <laughs> behind the scenes stuff because I was getting those 
you know how they had the records, the Peter Pan? I think it were Peter yeah, Pan. Yeah, they, they told like, the story. The story with the comic book that went along with it. I was like, what is this? And then a couple years later, I listened to it, and I realized what a treasure this was. Here we go on the Indicia page, Starlog, the magazine of the future. And there's a special box that gives us a guide to the Star Trek Bicentennial 10 convention. We definitely will be discussing that. From the bridge. This is the introduction by David Houston, the editor-in-chief. Interesting. He says... Recently, we had an experience that was practically surrealistic. We found ourselves surrounded by sci-fi and Starlog fans. It wasn't a dream, and it wasn't just a flood of mail. These were real, live, flesh-and-blood humans. It happened at the Star Trek Bicentennial 10 convention in New York City. Several things surprised us about these thousands of enthusiastic, fun-loving people. First, the age range. Although most were young, teens, some were obviously mature professionals with youthful spirits, while others couldn't have been older than seven or eight years old with serious minds. Second, they were smart. Oh, there was definitely a selection of delightful Trekkie nuts running around. There always is at any con. But by and large, the comments delivered to us in person were sharp, well-thought-out, perceptive, and knowledgeable. Being science fiction fans ourselves, we had always been of the opinion that this field had a natural attraction for brains, blush, and it's nice to have that notion confirmed by so many intelligent beings. Third, and most surprising, were the specific requests we heard for future, fe for future features. There's a tremendous interest in the old Twilight Zone and the Outer Limits TV series, and some of the kids who asked about these couldn't have been through puberty when the shows were first on the air. We found that they were absolutely right in our resolve never to put out an issue without something on Star Trek, but we were really surprised to learn that the same should be true of Space 1999. There are more 1999 fans among Trekkies than you might suspect. That close encounter with our readership was wonderful. Few magazines have had such an experience. That, along with our morning mail, has told us there is definitely someone out there in the darkness ready to grab our wrists and hang on. We want to share this knowledge with you, our readers, simply because you, too, may have wondered whether you are alone in your enjoyment of the romantic visions of the future that science fiction offers. You may have thought that this is a secret little pleasure that couldn't possibly mean that much to anyone else. Wrong, dear friend. Science fiction has inspired and uplifted virtually every scientist alive, every person, whatever his profession, who thrills to new frontiers, to the risks of experimentation, to the dangers of the unknown. At a convention such as the one we attended, that point is clear. And that is one of the seldom-mentioned reasons that conventions are important to the individuals who attend. It's also one of the reasons we are devoting a main section of this issue to conventions. The stories that begin on page 24 are our way of sharing the experience with readers who have never had the pleasure of mingling with thousands of other excited science fiction fans. It's also our way of saying thanks to the readers 
who have told us in letters and in person how to make Starlog a magazine they love, and in doing so have contributed to making it their own. Now, we met at a Star Trek convention, and we got married at a Star Trek convention. I mean, conventions so, are part of our lives, so... Oh, definitely, yeah. Who's more Star Trek than us? Who's more con than us? <laughs> <laughs> so this, we weren't around going to conventions back then in 1977, and this magazine focuses in on the big one of 1976, but what a love letter to the fans. Yeah, it was great, just sh- showing how much um, the fans love, well, Starlog magazine and, and uh, going to cons, because that's a big part of fandom. No doubt. Log Entries, the latest news from the worlds of science fiction. Article, So Near and Yet So Far. A scant day before the Star Trek Bicentennial 10 convention, Leonard Nimoy was in town but couldn't make it to the convention due to his hectic schedule. The event that brought him to town was a historic first, though. Leonard and William Shatner were guest players on ABC's $20,000 Pyramid, and it was the first time that they have appeared together on the same television stage since Star Trek filmed its last episode seven years ago. The reason that he couldn't make it to the convention was he was touring in the play Sherlock Holmes, which also stars Alan Seuss. Any guess as to which character Leonard played? I, I noticed that. I mean, I mean, the thing is, if you read, you know, other articles in in this issue, it'll say who he played. But of course, we know. But I mean, but it, but it was neat that they didn't say it there. But then they later on they they do say it. So, but, oh yeah, but to see them on that show, twenty what twenty thousand dollar pyramid? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that would have been cool. First time on stage together since the in show. The studio, yes, yeah, that's yeah. Mm-hmm. And and the thing is, I mean. Because later on, we, we know they became best friends. They, they talked about it. But yeah, that, that would have been cool to see that. That, that episode's probably floating around there somewhere. Another news article. NASA unveils the Enterprise. On September 17th, the world's first reusable spacecraft was rolled out of its hangar at Palmade, California, and was christened the Enterprise to the Star Trek theme song. In the invited audience were Gene Roddenberry, Leonard Nimoy, DeForest Kelly, Nichelle Nichols, George Takei, and Walter Koenig, who all had very gratified smiles. The name was changed almost at the last minute by President Ford in response to a massive letter-writing campaign mounted by Star Trek fans all over the country. But I like this article because the, the Enterprise was something the fans had, you know, something we got to name. And, you know, and NASA agreed with it. I mean, and now we know, I mean, of course, a lot of uh, people who work for NASA are Star Trek fans. No doubt about it. And we see that in the opening credits to the TV series Star Trek Enterprise, that this space shuttle is part of the opening credits. It is. So we could say (laughs) that it's almost like the time paradox. What came first? (laughs) The shuttle or the Enterprise? Well, the shuttle came first. (laughs) (laughs) So it is interesting, like they had everybody there except William Shatner because he was doing something else at the time. Great photos here. It it is. Yeah, this is like, you know, this picture has always been going around, the picture of the cast that was there. It's a very 70s 
photo there. Bell bottoms, butterfly collars. And um, and and this about the space shuttle was also mentioned in the the Star Trek online course that they have from from the Smithsonian. Mm-hmm. So that that was cool too. They talked about it. Leonard Nimoy's first alien role. Mention the name Leonard Nimoy in the image of Star Trek's Mr. Spock is sure to come to mind. Contrary to popular belief, the Vulcan science officer, however, was not Leonard Nimoy's first alien role. And it shows a picture of him in the movie Zombies of the Stratosphere. Which looks like a really uh, cheap sci-fi movie because he, he's supposed to be playing an alien in it. And he looks like a, a man in a stupid costume. <laughs> but but I think that I also heard that this is Leonard Nimoy's first uh, acting role. I mean, professionally. But it doesn't it doesn't say that here. It just says that he it was an alien he did before Spock. And of course, and I didn't realize they had renamed the movie to some other name, Satan something, Satan's Satellites. So maybe that's why. I mean, maybe if we look out for it under the new name, maybe we could find it. Because <laughs> I never heard of Zombies of the Stratosphere ever being on TV. Because I mean, you I've know. never watched it, <laughs> but this reading Starlog inspires me to, yeah, to dig yeah. deep into this. Another news article: Star Trek movie update. Now this is very interesting because you've always heard the legend saying that the motion picture came out because of Star Wars. This article predates the release of Star Wars. That's that's why we have to look at these historical documents. Historical documents. Starlog okay. is a historical okay. document. Is it not? It this is. was our internet when we were growing up. In the, a departure from his earlier plans, discussed in Starlog number two, Gene Roddenberry presently has two English writers developing the screenplay for the proposed full-length Star Trek feature movie. A spokesman for Jerry Eisenberg, executive producer, said Paramount has hired Alan Scott and Chris Bryant to write the film screenplay. They've moved from England to Los Angeles in order to enable them to work closely with both Gene Roddenberry and Jerry Eisenberg. A motion picture was in the works. Well, well, the thing about this... Because they don't say TV movie. We know a TV movie was planned, but this specifically says feature movie. Yes, but the thing about this is that it's not the way the movie turned out. I mean, they had it had a completely different team working on it than what all these names they mentioned here. Interesting, so you isn't know it? it went through some changes. No doubt, there's an ad for Starlog Showcase. Featured on the Starlog Showcase are original color prints, and they range in price from four ninety five to nine ninety five. An Enterprise pendant for four ninety five, an Enterprise ring for four ninety five. Well, I think that this ad was in every Starlog for a while. Sure was. Roddenberry's Spectre. Gene Roddenberry, the creator producer of Star Trek, has signed a contract with 20th Century Fox to make a two-hour movie of the week for NBC Television. The film is called Spectre and will be produced from the screenplay Roddenberry first wrote a few years ago. So it's a gothic horror. Yeah, and that one I haven't seen. But I know I, I've heard of it. I remember reading about it in Starlog again. Another news article. Catherine Shell here to publicize Space 1999. And it shows pictures of her and Leonard Nimoy on a Boston-based talk show, Good Day, promoting their current projects. 
Yeah, so this was really about Catherine Schell, but they had a picture of Leonard Nimoy there because he was with her on, on what, that talk show? Yes. He, we know Leonard's from Boston, so yes. it makes sense. The new Roddenberry Star Trek novel. Gene Roddenberry is presently adapting his first script written for the Star Trek film, which was rejected by Paramount, into a novel for Bantam Books. When asked what the novel will deal with, Gene Roddenberry answered, Generally, the situation is that the five-year mission is over, and it has been for some time. Most of the regular crew have been promoted, and for the most part are pretty unhappy with shuffling papers and other administrative jobs. Scotty has become an alcoholic, and McCoy has given up treating human patients to become a veterinarian, loudly proclaiming animals as the only sensible patients he's ever had. It gives us kind of a fun look at these people's strengths and weaknesses. In the story, there is a threat that brings them all back together again. Gene said that the main thrust of the story deals with the meaning of God and whether or not God is much more and further beyond merely some entity that visited the Garden of Eden. Though confident of publication in the near future, Roddenberry wasn't exactly sure when he would complete the book. So a lot of that became... um what was in the motion picture. And remember that Gene Roddenberry wrote the novel for the motion picture. Mm-hmm. I mean, about the search for God and everything, that part of and it. And there's a lot of details in that novel that didn't make it to the picture that actually opens up the scope of the Star Trek universe even more so. I mean, it's a great it, read. Yeah, he put he put other stuff in it. But, but I mean, the part about, like, McCoy being a vet, mm-hmm. a veterinarian, that, I mean, that's interesting because it's in, it's in this issue of Starlog again as, um, something, when they interviewed DeForest Kelly, I mean, Kelly said he kind of got that idea about McCoy. And, but, you know, but, I, but Scotty being a drunk, I don't know why, he, like, why wouldn't Scotty yeah, just continue yeah. to be an engineer and, you know, be a proud worker and Starfleet officer? News article, Lasers for Defense, and it shows a picture of the Enterprise, and it's an Associated Press release of the U.S. and Soviet scientists are racing for revolutionary breakthrough to laser weaponry that could rival the birth of the atomic bomb and the intercontinental missiles. So it's saying that they were working on On laser laser defenses, and it shows the Enterprise's yeah, and I see what they're doing. They're having an article that, that doesn't talk about Star Trek, but they just put a Star Trek picture there. <laughs> now let's go into the main focus of this magazine, which takes up a quite a large amount of the publication, and that is the Star Trek Bicentennial 10 Convention. So, so the name was, okay, it was in 1976... Which was the bicentennial, bicentennial of, of the of United the, States of the U.S. Mm-hmm. But but it's also Star Trek, the ten uh, year anniversary of Star Trek. So it, that's why they call it bicentennial ten. And Starlog sent a lot of reporters there. Quite a few. And that's why they yeah. So and each one of them. Well, they said some of them were there for the whole con. Some were only there for a day. But they interviewed a lot of people among all of them that were there. And they gave an idea to what the convention was like. They said that there was a lot of things in the sales room, such as buttons, T-shirts, Spock ears, alien antennas, props, such as communicators, tricorders. We know that that's one of the highlights. When we were going to conventions years ago, that 
the the dealers rooms were really impressive. I say more impressive then than now because of the internet. I don't want to take away from dealers rooms now, but I know that the first Star Trek convention that I went to, one of the highlights was I was able to buy things. I was able to buy things that I couldn't get in stores. It it was stuff that um that you didn't even know existed. True, yes. And I mean, yeah, I mean a lot more uh things back then that you didn't know about. Mhm. And it talks about how impressed everyone was at the variety of guests there because it wasn't just Star Trek alumni, but also NASA representatives. So we're seeing that the early Star Trek conventions were were a nice balance between science fiction and real world science. And that was cool because the, because a lot of uh, Star Trek fans are interested in science, and a lot of, and I mean all of those um, science guests that were there probably were Star Trek fans, and and they they probably even said that that they got into Star Trek because or they got into science because of their love of Star Trek. They also had the world premiere of Universe, an astronomy documentary narrated by William Shatner. Five around five thousand fans were in attendance in New York City. I mean, that's bigger than a lot of cons now. That's roughly, because I think the Star Trek Las Vegas convention is shy of 6,000 people. So, it was roughly around the same time as Star yeah, Trek Las Vegas, when I you mean, think because, about it. Well, Star Trek back then was, I mean, it was popular with the fans. Maybe I mean, you know, maybe the, the following was smaller back then, but the fans really wanted the cons because it was all they had. Yes. I mean, it was a passionate know, following. Yes. And this was the early generation. It wasn't multi-generational at that point. All there was was the original series and the animated series back then. Yes. And so, I mean, like, my brother and I, our first convention, my parents didn't go with us. They just dropped us off. But now it's a whole different world. Now you have entire families going together. So it was like a, it was a different world back then. First personal appearance that it has documentation of, Nichelle Nichols. And it shows her with the caption, I've been doing what I can to promote support of the space program, which I think is a fascinating aspect of Nichelle. We know she worked for NASA as a recruiter. She she recruited a lot of women and other minorities uh, to work for NASA, and that's awesome. And and it was something she liked doing, and she she's just uh, so proud of that, and she should be. She's quoted, I think that women at the time Star Trek was being produced for the network were not regarded then as Uhura was meant to be. It was thought to be a terrible kind of turnoff to the public to have women in the command positions of any form. So her position was very different, and that was the more and more we watch shows of that period, we're we're seeing how drastically different Star Trek was compared to Lost in Space or Flash Gordon. And and Michelle, yeah, this was such a great interview that that she had in this, um, and and saying that uh, how how you couldn't let people know you read science fiction a few years ago, but now you can. People, the fans are a little a little bit more open now. I mean, a, a, in this time in the 70s, and, and science fiction is even more out in the open now, mm-hmm. which is great. And now we, I mean, we're still sit, considered nerds, but I mean, but we let people know that we, <laughs> that we like sci-fi anyway. And she goes on to talk about how she's working on a book, how she feels that NASA's mission is everyone's mission. And this, Michelle still believes in NASA. She still talks about it now. Um, I mean, it's... 
It's still, um, you know, one of her great passions, just like it is for us. She makes a statement, As far as the national budget is concerned, I think it's going to get balanced by the space program. The return per dollar has been 7 to 1. The benefits to humankind from spin-offs, including pacemakers, field monitoring machines, water power tools, to say nothing of glamour products like Tang and Teflon and freeze-dried coffee. That so. is what I've heard, that we got we got a lot of new technology from, from the space program. And a lot of people don't know that. They just think the space program is a waste of money, and, the, and they don't realize all, all the stuff that has come from it. That's right. Personal appearance, Yesko von Puttkamer. And he's a NASA space scientist. This is a, a, a short blurb about him. He makes a statement. Of course, you can have your Star Trek universe. All you have to do is realize it as you realize any dream, setting it as your goal and progressing towards it step by step. And the first step towards a Star Trek universe is a space station. And that's neat. Yeah, he's he's actually a NASA scientist, and he became the uh, the science advisor for Star Trek The Motion Picture. Now, now I understand that Gene actually wanted... He was trying to get Isaac Asimov to be the science advisor, but they he couldn't get him. He wasn't available for some reason. So, but this guy Yesko was pretty cool. So we're glad he got the job, and he he was happy. The infamous Star Trek blooper reel. Now that's something that we both used to enjoy at Star Trek conventions, and before VCRs, that was the only way we could see it was the bloopers of Star Trek, and that was a staple years ago. They would be showing them like on several little TVs in in the vendors' room. They call it the, the dealers' room. The I first mean, time I saw it, it was on the big screen. Oh in, yeah, in, yeah. In the they did show them. They showed them. Yeah, the, in the main programming, they would show mm-hmm. them, but they would also just be constantly playing them in in the vendors' room. Yes, all the slip ups. And they actually were on TV one time. There was one of the because there was an era when there were a lot of bleeper shows on TV. I remember. That. <laughs> yeah. And so bloopers, there was bleepers and practical jokes. TV's mm-hmm. bloopers and practical jokes. Yes. That was I think that was the most popular one. Mm-hmm. There was one called Fell Ups, Bleeps and Blenders that had okay. William Shatner as a guest and he showed Star Trek bloopers. That was the first time I had seen them and oh, it was nice. the same ones that they that they showed at cons. Mhm. I mean because there's only a handful of Star Trek bloopers from the original series. Yes. And those are the ones that they keep showing. So it was great to reminisce about this in this article. Personal appearance, Catherine Hayes, Jim. And and talking about how they did her makeup, and she said, like, they, they had to uh, put something around her head to keep her face perfectly still so they could film all the stages of, of doing that makeup when they did her transition at the end where she took on the uh, the illness from McCoy. And, and that's just amazing how she had to sit still for that long. Oh, and, and because it only lasted a few seconds on screen. Personal appearance, James Doohan. Chief Engineer Montgomery Scott. And he's a great guy, too. And and he says he's an actual science and science fiction lover. I mean, imagine that. And, of course, we know he was a pilot in the Air Force in Canada. Notice he says, I would like to see more money put into the space program because I believe in it and I want to see it well run. Probably in a few years we'll have another breakthrough in space travel, which will automatically supply more money to space. So maybe we shouldn't worry about it. Makes sense. Personal appearance. Stanley Adams. Cyrano Jones. Oh, this was interesting because it said he he wrote The Mark of Gideon. Cyrano Jones 
wrote the Marcus Gideon. Isn't that wild? <laughs> and that that picture doesn't look anything like him either. Yeah, I didn't get it. I know it makes me wonder if they showed the wrong picture, but uh, who knows? I like it how that Gene Roddenberry knew him as a writer, and he said, "Stanley, I didn't know you were an actor." Oh, interesting. But well, he he was a pretty good comedy actor in that episode. Then it shows a whole bunch of pictures. It says Trekkies and Conventioneers. It shows some kids with Star Trek uniforms on, wearing Star Trek shirts, the convention room or the huckster room, David Gerald. Yeah, that is interesting how they called them hucksters back then. I read that in Best of Trek, too. It was weird. And it shows a picture of David Gerald signing... Autographs, And it says he's signing a Starlog, yeah. And, I mean, Starlog had a booth at that convention. That's pretty cool. And they, yeah, yeah, they had really a banner. Cool. Yeah. And I wish Starlog would well, of course, bring something back. Now. I wish uh, boy, I wish they would bring it back just like they brought back Fangoria and Famous Monsters of Filmland. Personal appearance, George Takei, Helmsman Sulu. What did you think about this article? Uh, he's always fun to see at cons. He's always smiling. He's got to be one of the happiest people on earth. I mean, look at the joy he that he has being with the fans, which yeah, I see, think he is really, fantastic. He really likes the fans. I mean, mm-hmm. and he likes talking to them and everything. I mean, you know, we ran into him on the street, and he and he took the time to talk to us, which it was, was amazing. He's super conversational. Oh yeah, and of course we know how he was he was making uh, the movie with John Wayne, and then that's how he missed out on several episodes of Star Trek. Mm-hmm. So the part in the games reserved Triskelion was actually written for Sulu, but since he couldn't be there for that, they rewrote it for Chekhov. So Sulu didn't get as much character development, which is sad for him. But you know, I but do. Yes. Later on, he mm-hmm. he got some uh, bigger parts in the movies, and and of course, and George is so popular now. I mean, you know, every like see, not everyone knew his name back then, but everyone knows his name now. It mentions here. When he's not relaxing, George devotes some of his time to his political duties, which presently include serving on the Los Angeles Rapid Transit Board. So we know that that's what he was involved with after Star Trek. That's right. And he's always been into politics and and um, and other organizations like that. Personal appearance, DeForest Kelly, Chief Medical Officer Dr. Lennon McCoy. Excellent article. He talks about how his favorite episode was City on the Edge of Forever, and he appreciated the empath, and he did like For the World is Hollow, because... He finally you know, got a girlfriend. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> so, it was. it's interesting to see him. There's, there's little kids going up to the stage. Now, this is something that you'd never see now. The stage is only about a foot taller than the audience, so it was a small stage. It wasn't like one of the massive stages now that are distant from the audience. But they're letting kids go up to the stage and talk to them. You know, they don't really allow as much of that these days. I mean, you know, like they try to have a moderator now, and sometimes they might let you up, up there to, to give them a gift or something. But a lot of cons put it in the rules now that you can't give them a gift or anything dur- mm-hmm. during their panel. He talks but, about yeah. being on Bonanza and having a good relationship with Gene Roddenberry back then. Because he was known for westerns previous to Star Trek. He was. He did a lot of westerns back then. Personal appearance, Walter Koenig. Now, we've seen him many times. Yeah, I like seeing him, too. 
he commend he commended the convention for extreme being extremely well run and being professionally run and he was looking forward to doing the Star Trek film this next year he said he says that it goes into production next February and should be released late 1977 now isn't this fascinating how we're getting such a different picture of what became the motion picture Yes. Now, I think it was right after this, though, was when they had decided to do Star Trek Phase Two, the series. And then after after they had all these plans to make a series, then they decided to change it to a movie. Mm-hmm. Because the movie didn't come out until 79. Great costumes. They're showing costumes. Uh, the Salt Vampire. Someone's dressed up as Red Sonja. Star Trek Animated. Now, this is some shots of the animated series, and it's amazing. Malcolm Klein, the consultant from Filmation, uh, was there to discuss the series. Oh, they got someone from that, from behind the scenes. And don't you, you have actually uh, some cells from from the animated series. Beautiful artwork. I I love the animated series for what it was at the time. It, it was good artwork, and some of the some of the stories were actually good. I mean, mm-hmm. they were um, they were thought provoking, just like the uh, the live action original. Personal appearance: William Shatner, Captain James T. Kirk. Now, I love this picture. It's William Shatner in a kind of a leisure suit. It's a beige leisure suit. Open, hairy chest. Do you like that? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's so funny. It's a little shiny, too. You can see those little, the, looks like glitter pants. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, yeah, it's so 70s, but it's just... Um, and everybody's yeah. sitting around him Indian style. It's not on a stage. He's just standing in the middle of the floor, and everyone is crowded around him, but they're still respecting his space. It, it is. It's a really <laughs> fascinating picture, because, I mean, just to think, the you know, the way he... So it sort of seems more isolated now, even though he does talk to people at the panels, but he still stays up there on the stage. But but it, but the thing is, when you read this interview with him, though, didn't he seem kind of bitter in this article? I mean, in some places where, you know. <laughs> well, he talks about this film that he wished he didn't do called Devil's Reign. We know that he's done a lot of oddball things over the years. I mean, I know in another interview where he said that he really... I mean, he took every job he could back then. I mean, I mean, you know, he he needed the work, he needed the money. So I mean, yeah, he was yeah. doing commercials for grocery stores, and sure. But he says, uh, talking about signing autographs, he says, "I think it's silly. The serious part is that you want some part of me, which I really appreciate. The other part of it is that my signature, first off, is illegible. Secondly, the real part for me is that if I sign a hundred. If I sign 500, I'll alienate the rest of you. So I won't sign any autographs. But you have my deepest appreciation for the years that we've been together. Yeah, so he didn't so, sign yeah. there. Yes, yeah, so he didn't sign. Well I, well, I mean, I, you know, because later on, I several of the actors actually stopped signing autographs. I mean, this is back when when people didn't pay separately for the autographs. Mm-hmm. And because... Um, when we started first going to conventions, they were all included with the admission. 
Okay. Remember that? It yeah, was like yeah. you go I mean, and you get a picture if you want. Virtually no one took pictures well, no, back well, you then. No, you took yeah. your own camera, you took not your own photo camera. ops. But I mean, but Correct, yeah. but I'm saying if you wanted to take a picture, they didn't charge you for it. There's no such thing as selfies back then. Right. And then you got stuff autographed and you moved on. But, but, it, but I mean. It was a whole different animal back then. What, what became the, the thing in the 90s, though, was that... um. The, the autograph lines were so long. And, and they were you ridiculous. understand this. There's no way that the actors could sit there for that long to sign autographs and for, they had for all those people. They had people bringing stacks of stuff instead right. of just one or two things. Yeah. So you kind of see where he's coming from. I mean, he just said, like, he can't sign for everybody, so he just he just won't sign at all. Which Yeah. You, you I, I see, see what it. he's saying. Yeah. Because <laughs> if you're going to get one signature there, it's going to be Captain Kirk. Yeah. He goes on to say, Leonard hasn't signed a contract with Paramount for the Star Trek movie yet. Don't tell anybody, but Paramount Studios has been ripping us off to such an extent that it's humiliating. Don't tell anybody, though. (laughs) (laughs) I've suffered the humiliation graciously, but he has gotten his back up, and that is really the difference between us. So, yeah, so he's saying that Leonard is just trying to get a better contract. He's holding back to get more money, yeah. I mean, and it could be. Mm -hmm. But Leonard also had other work. I think this is what they said he was doing Sherlock Holmes at this mm-hmm. time. And, and, you know, the thing we've heard, when, when an actor is doing a con, it usually means they don't have a job at that time. Of course. Even though some of them take time off their job to go to cons on weekends, but some of them don't or can't get away because they, they might be filming over the weekend. And, and, uh, so Shatner said it was in his contract that if there, if there is a potential new Star Trek series that he gets to be in it. Mm-hmm. I mean, and he liked that. I mean, I think he sounded like he, he would want to do that. But he did said he didn't want his children to become actors. So he brought his kids to the set and to show them how boring it was. But they were showing Miri, and he suggested put his kids in there. So, <laughs> so <I laughs> that's mean, how that worked out. I know. I, I thought he I love his stories. From, oh, yeah, yeah. From his kids being in it, though, they probably, they still, they didn't like it at that time, right? Yeah. But, but we do know that one of his daughters wound up being in Star Trek IV, so. That's right. <laughs> Personal appearance. Susan Oliver. Sole survivor from the first exposition to Talos IV. Vina. It's a great picture of her. I love that picture. Pretty, yes. And that was something popular that women would wear. Pearl necklace, but then it would be tied in a knot on the bottom. And then she's with a fan, and the fan has a t-shirt that says, Tribbles are the, Tribbles are the only love money can buy. Oh, that's what Uhura said. So, yeah, it's a quote from the episode. Yep. It's kind of cool, fan-made shirt. And I like that Susan Oliver said that they, the, they filmed the episode and around Christmas time and so they exchanged Christmas gifts. Mm-hmm. That was neat. Yes, yes. Saying how much he really enjoyed being on that set. Now, this is interesting for people who are thinking about conventions because there, well, first off, there is a convention listing. Talks about different, cause this was our internet back then, so different conventions that were going on, such as Creation 76, that was going on in Flushing, New York. Star Trek Philadelphia was going on in Staten Island, New York. That's the, well, it took place in Philadelphia. 
But yeah, the now, office these, was Staten Island. That's it's kind of weird. The the address is different than the location. That, so that's what that's what I'm saying. The address I think was so you can write them a letter asking them for information. It's not where oh, the con is gotcha, going to gotcha, be. Gotcha, gotcha, yeah, yeah. So I'm seeing that some match up. Some match up very much so, which makes sense. But some like that one really didn't. Because the address might be a P.O. box on some of these. Yep, there were Star Trek conventions going on at that time, and this is how you found out about them in Starlog. But the article is entitled, So You Want to Have a Star Trek Convention. This idea is, living seriously in your head, go directly to the nearest community home for the bewildered. You will be greeted with open arms, and chances are you'll spot several people sitting on the lawn who are involved in the planning and production of previous Star Trek cons. What did you think about this article? I love it. Yeah, about about um, all the, the problems you go through uh, putting on a convention. And in this case, it was really the problem was they had too many people. Started out historically. It's like a historical tour of Star Trek conventions starting out in 1972. It was a massive success. and but But it was too much of a success that... They couldn't organize it properly, but like anything else, it's growing pains. And they were afraid of, you know, the fire marshal shutting them down or, like, just closing mm-hmm. down the big room. And they, they said, well, the, I mean, the fire marshal was very cooperative. Um, they had trouble, like, with one of the, the hotel people that they were, they were supposed to be their contact person was not always available when they needed him. Things like that. And it talks about the growing pains from 72 to 73. This time, we'd be smarter. We'd really plan ahead. We chose a larger hotel, our beloved Commodore, and made arrangements for a six to 8,000 fan con. We got two of the stars of the show to come, and that was the first con that James Doohan and George Takei attended. When we were going to cons years ago, it was one or two celebrities. It was. That was, and happy as can be with that. But at the Bicentennial, though, they Bicentennial, had just about everybody. That was the 10-year yeah. anniversary one, sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Goes on to say 1974, it grew even more so. And they had to have a committee working for it. Mentions that uh, one of the fan publications that was popular was Monster Times. And we have those issues of Monster Times with, with Star Trek on the cover. I think that was uh, really integral in getting the success of conventions was to seed out advertisements in all the geek magazines and, and geek publications because yes. there was no Internet at the time. And they talk about building up a mailing list. We, we were both on mailing lists for conventions. Yes, back when, well, I mean, you know, after I started going to cons. You yeah. Know. And and um, so the person that wrote this article also wrote a book, Star Trek Lives, which was about putting on conventions. Mm-hmm. And it was a great book. I read it back in the 70s. Interesting also that they had to seek out press for the convention. And this was one of the ways that they could get the word out. I mean, pre-internet, it was all word of mouth and networking. And, it, I mean, it was in a major city, though. So Sure. You know, you have to think, well, they could just put up a sign. And, and they mentioned come. that. And they mentioned that, that that they couldn't do it in other cities. They had to, because of the time, Star Trek fandom, as big as it was, they had to be realistic of who was going to pay and who was going to travel to something like this. So they wanted to keep it in the larger cities, such as New York or Los Angeles. But we're glad that Star Trek conventions and pop culture conventions have widened out now, and they're... Available virtually everywhere. Well, well, now they've become 
you know, mostly big corporate conventions. And, and, um, it's hard to find some that, uh, one that's just Star Trek. I mean, now they, but most of them are general, sure. yeah, general fandom. Classified ads. Close out the magazine by talking about these classified ads, such as brand new Star Trek puzzle manual. Puzzles, mazes, trivia, word games, and lots of amazing mind-bending surprises. A Trekkie dream book at bookstores everywhere, or send five ninety-five plus sixty cents for postage. Star Trek fans, giant catalog of rare and beautiful, authentic Star Trek items. We have real tribbles. Send one dollar for info to Star Trek Log, Elmwood, Connecticut. I mean, I had the, the Star Trek puzzle manual. I, well, you said you we had it too. We still do. Right? Yeah, we yeah have, I had it as a we kid. We have ours yeah. now. Mm-hmm. And yeah. there was there was a Star Trek catalog. You know that book that was a Star mm-hmm. Trek catalog. That was so cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Self-sticking Vulcan crystals, assorted crystals, one dollar for twenty. That's funny. <laughs> it's probably just what <laughs> these classifieds are. Yeah, I these mean. classifieds are hysterical. Hi, I'm Michelle Nichols, but I still feel a little bit like Lieutenant Uhura on the Starship Enterprise. You know, now there's a 20th century Enterprise, an actual space vehicle built by NASA and designed to put us in the business of space, not merely space exploration. Now, NASA's Enterprise is a space shuttle built to make regularly scheduled runs into space and back, just like a commercial airline. The shuttle may even be used to build a space station in orbit around the Earth. And this would require the services of people with a variety of skills and qualifications. Average good health is required, and candidates will train right here at Johnson Space Center, just outside Houston, Texas. Now, the shuttle will be taking scientists and engineers, men and women of all races, into space, just like the astronaut crew on the Starship Enterprise. So that is why I'm speaking to the whole family of humankind, minorities and women alike. If you qualify and would like to be an astronaut, now is the time. This is your NASA. A space agency embarked on a mission to improve the quality of life on planet Earth right now. Starlog Magazine, number four. $1.50, March 1977. This one has a $6 million man cover, but it does mention new column by David Gerald. Now, this issue, David Gerald doesn't talk about Star Trek, but it does mention that he's the youngest member of the Writers Guild. He has a lot to say, and they're giving him a regular column. And that was cool. Yeah, his was my favorite column in this magazine. Also on the cover, Frederick Brown's Arena, illustrated short sto- story and photos from Trek version. So I very much look forward to that. From the bridge, from David Houston, editor-in-chief. He makes mention of that Arena story by saying, We have many requests for fiction, so we've decided that we will, from time to time, present significant works that have influenced movies and or TV. And we have an absorbing drama to kick things off. Frederick Brown's Arena, a short story with so fundamental a theme that it has served directly or indirectly as the basis for many other stories, 
films and TV shows, including an episode of Star Trek and one from The Outer Limits. Log Entries Latest news from the worlds of science fiction. So again, it has a blurb about the NASA space shuttle being named Enterprise. Kind of a, a redo of what was announced last issue in Starlog. Yes. New book is coming out. David Gerald's Odyssey. And it mentions that it's a departure from his Star Trek-oriented material. Star Trek Bubblegum Cards. The Topps Chewing Gum Company has done it again. For years, they had a monopoly on cards of the professional sports stars. More recently, they have struck while the iron is hot, turning pop culture events into trading cards. The Planet of the Apes, Marvel Superheroes, Happy Days, Good Times, and earlier on, The Outer Limits have all been turned into bubblegum trading cards. Now, ten years after the event, Tops has contracted with Paramount to produce Star Trek bubblegum cards. This is an unusual series in two respects. Firstly, they have the full run of the TV series from which to choose from. And secondly, because the series has 88 cards and 22 stickers, many more than any of their previous TV series cards. The cards are composed of an action shot on the front, an episode title, and a short synopsis on the back. The stickers are basically full-face portraits of all the important characters. There are seven different Spock stickers. Each package contains five cards and a sticker in, oh yes, one piece of bubblegum, all for one thin dime. I don't remember ever seeing Star Trek cards in stores. I don't remember those. Oh, you don't remember those particular ones? Because I had Star Wars cards. I mm -hmm. like I was obsessed with trading cards. Kiss trading cards, Elvis trading cards. Like, whatever was out, my brother and I would get them. And I don't remember these coming out in the 70s. They must not have um, had Didn't good have distribution good, no, on those. No, yeah. Definitely did not. Letters to Star Trek is exactly what the title it says it is. Edited by Gene Roddenberry's secretary, Susan Sackett, Letters is a survey of some of the many thousands of letters received and processed by the Star Trek staff and, since the show's network demise, the individual people concerned with the show. Great book. We have it in our collection. We love reading it. Here's an advertisement for original science fiction posters in full color, including this one, Star Trek Fantasy. Only $3 each, plus $0.60 cents postage. Now we have a letter column, Communications. The answer to a Trekkie's prayers. Is anyone in the Star Trek industry writing books on the making of the Enterprise drawings? The making of the manuals, articles of Federation? Another letter. I am looking for information about anything collected with science fiction. I would like to know about fan clubs, magazines, etc. I would also like you to print more articles about the Star Trek conventions. The comments... This is just a small sample of the letters we get for information about things Trek. The 150 volunteer workers around the country who devote time to answering questions and supplying information for Star Trek fans is a unique and wonderful group. They are much better equipped than we are to respond to readers on topics specifically related to Star Trek. Please address your inquiries to the Star Trek Well Committee. 
care of Shirley Mayuski, and they gave her address. And you know my story about the Star Trek Well Committee. Yeah, I know you were in it. Yeah, I don't know if for some reason I never joined it, but it yeah it really sounds cool. Yep. And Shirley Mayuski also is the one that wrote The Mind Sifter, that short story right. that was in Star Trek New Voyages and then Star Trek Continues. Was no, it was Star Trek uh, New New Voyages Phase Two that did an episode of it. Reader requests. Being a Star Trek fan and writing for a hobby, I have come up with an idea for a Star Trek movie plot. Now, could you help me and give me Mr. Roddenberry's address so I could send the idea to him? Oh, yeah, I'd like <laughs> his address, too. Starlog responds, Unfortunately, for all these eager fans, we are up to our ears working on the magazine, and we have neither the time nor the faculties to answer requests. What we can do is direct you to the proper people. In our next issue, number five, we will present a complete science fiction address guide. Please be patient. There you go. Yeah, I can't wait for that issue. The NCC question. In issue number two, the question was asked by Byron Cannon as to just what the NCC stood for on the USS Enterprise, NCC 1701. You stated that it was the Naval Construction Contract Number, which was a slight error. The answer can be found in the Lincoln Enterprise's 24-page booklet, 50 Most Asked Questions. According to Matt Jeffries, who designed the original Enterprise plans, these letters were pulled out of the blue. Sometime around 1928, there was an international agreement, and each country came up with a letter to designate itself. The United States became the N. The C also came into use at that time and stood for commercial. These two letters, followed by a serial number, were used to designate early United States aircraft. At the time the Star Trek pilot episode was being done, Matt and Gene decided to use the N because of the United States, and they thought it needed more than one C. A pair of C's was used primarily because this reads well from a distance. That was interesting, and so so one person said it it's from one thing, and another person said it's something else, and then they and they both stated their resources too. One of them came from a Franz book. Mm-hmm. We know that that's mm-hmm. not canon, but we grew up with that. I mean, that was. Yeah. I think that they were looking for. Okay, that's the real world version. We have to realize there's a production response, and then a in-universe response. So they're both right okay. in their own ways. But but do you know that that book that was mentioned the uh, the fifty most asked I questions? I never heard of it. Yeah, so he said it was something that was in um, Lincoln Enterprises catalog, which we don't know, have it. You know, but you know the Lincoln was Gene Roddenberry's uh, yes. Star Trek company back then that sold stuff. And they wanted everything to be flat so they can mail it easily. Yeah, that's why they never had bulky things to to. to Okay, so we'll, but we'll have to look for that. Like, you a, if, are you, you're it. watching for it on eBay in case I'm someone looking has all a copy yes. for sale. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you want it, baby doll? Yeah. <laughs> Here's their response. We'd like to thank you, Bruce, and all the other trickers who pointed this out to us. The naval construction contract explanation, however, was not pulled out of the air. That is the explanation given by Franz Joseph in Star Trek Blueprints. Exactly. But the Franz Joseph stuff is not canon? No. Okay. It's we viewed it as canon growing up because that's all we had. And then since then, there have been things that contradicted Yes. Franz Joseph. Yeah. Well, actually, this talks about the blueprints, not the uh, the manual. 
Well, so, yeah, one person got yeah, it from yeah. one place. Yeah. And, yeah. I mean, it's just like people are doing on Facebook about, <laughs> about things. Grokking the Essence. This magazine will make an excellent platform for organizing a strong voice in the science fiction community. We want science fiction portrayed on the screen, but are no longer desperate. Unfortunately, many narrow-vision filmmakers are equating the essence of science fiction dramas with their special effects budgets instead of grokking the essence fully. There are many examples in the Star Trek story about an ideal solution that retained the essence and turned out to be inexpensive. If we do not take action, we will experience a flood of empty science fiction. So, yeah. Star Trek definitely was a game changer in the science fiction television world. But unfortunately, you're going to get some dud science fiction continuously. That's just the nature of the beast. Arena by Frederick Brown. What did you think about this story, baby? It was an interesting story. I mean, you want to go ahead and compare it to the episode? Yeah, I mean, it, this story originally appeared in 1944 in Astounding Science Fiction magazine. But they they still changed the story a lot when they did the Star Trek episode. They did, and in, see, and yeah. in the Outer Limits episode. Right, they did an Outer Limits episode, and and um and you can't tell that much either that the Star Trek and the Outer Limits episode are that similar, except for the the basic premise. Yes. So let's talk about this story. Well, there's quite a few changes, but some of the things are very similar. The, the, the major premise being an outside alien entity takes two beings from two different worlds that are opposed militarily, and they have to just fight it out using raw materials. Right. So that, that general idea they kept. So, yeah, and just changing like some of the details... This entire story is reprinted, so we took the time and read it, and it's just a fascinating story to compare to what we know in Star Trek. And Starlog goes ahead and presents a variety of color photos. From the episode Arena. And it's beautiful. I loved it. I mean, I, I, I loved this episode as a kid, and... To see these pictures and how they frame the story is just fantastic. So that episode, of course, was the classic um, gunpowder episode, mm-hmm. or you could call it the Gorn episode. Now, you looked into the gunpowder aspect. Well, well, what I found out, you know, like because they did it on Mythbusters, they tested it there and found out that you couldn't really make gunpowder out of the way, you know, the way Kirk did it in this episode. <laughs> and I think most people knew that anyway. I wonder if anyone actually has tried it in their backyard or something. But um, so so in this story arena by Frederick Brown, they had that you know there was that lizard that talked to the man. Mm-hmm. It was like a little pet. Yeah, but you you don't really know if if it was talking to him or if he was hallucinating. So so that part was interesting. So so the thing is though that the lizard talking to him, I think is what they adopted into the Gorn on Star Trek. I was Trek. thinking that too because after reading this story or during the reading of the story, I kept saying to myself. Okay, now is this lizard going to turn into an enemy? Like in the back of my mind, I was looking <laughs> yeah. for the links with Star Trek. Well, we just see that the framework of it is what Star Trek used, and then they treculated it and made it their own. 
Yeah, I guess that, I mean, because to make it a, a one hour TV show, you know, you just had to change some things. And of course, to make it more visual, because this was a story that was just printed in, in a, in a magazine for people to read, which is different from a TV medium. And the alien would be very difficult to create in the 1960s because it was more like a blob-like creature with tentacles right. shooting out. It was a rolling rock that had tentacles that could retract. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that would have been harder for TV back then. But, and, but I do like the way also the the uh, the Winston guy, human guy in the story, how he how he was... He became the most clever one in the end. He's the he was the one who figured out what to do in order to win, mm-hmm. which was just like Kirk. Even though he didn't do the same thing that Kirk did, but he he was the clever one, and I think it was mostly his his intelligence that won it for him. And Winston was naked during all this. I know, and that, that was weird <laughs> and he even too. has a Boris Vallejo painting here, beautiful artwork, but it's a, a naked guy. And I know when you were reading it, you were thinking, <laughs> wow, is this William Shatner? <laughs> well, it didn't look like him. No, it looked, the painting looked nothing like him. But, uh, but, yeah, but the artwork, they, so they made the artwork just for this Starlog, right? Mm-hmm. It wasn't originally printed with the, with the story or anything. Yes. It was just for this issue of Starlog. And yeah, the, the pictures, um, were good there with the story. They worked. Yeah. And I love, I love looking into anything that gives us more understanding of the series that we love so much and this story definitely did and having the idea of the the overall alien like like the the metrons in the episode of arena but in in this story you had the uh the superior beings that made the the humans and and the other race that made those two uh fight it out Mm -hmm. that that was uh that was an interesting idea too like that I mean, you have the one alien that's the enemy, but then you also have the other alien that's above it all, and yes. it's actually also the enemy. But you can't you can't fight him. You can't do anything against that enemy. You have mm-hmm. to play his game. That's right. Excellent way to compare and contrast. Now, what did you think? Of, what it what what did you think about the Outer Limits episode that came out before the Star Trek episode? Outer Limits came out a couple years before Trek. Yes. They had their own unique twist on Arena. I mean, they did it on, so, so the the oh, the, they did it with with couples instead of, instead of having an a individual guy and a person. girl human versus a guy and a girl alien. Right, like all other aliens are going to mate in twos, like we do. Yes. The Andorians don't, but anyway. <laughs> um, but but yeah, the way they did it was good. Having it oh, it was a man and woman. They didn't really know each other. They had only briefly met on Earth and then mm-hmm. got whisked away to do this uh, this battle with the aliens. But but they made a good story out of it too. What did I, you? Think? I liked it. I liked that out, outer limits. But again, we saw the Star Trek episode before we saw the outer limit episode, so we we kind of figured out to a degree the outcome, and we knew that it was based on Arena. But yeah, I. I loved it. The thing is, with that man and woman, did you feel like those two people didn't really have anything to lose when when they were doing this? Correct. Yeah, so they were. But I think the sacrifices that they made for each other was interesting. It was a different twist. Yes. Each one, like I don't want to compare the trek to the outer limits because the core material, uh, they both took the core material for what it was, and just expanded on it in their own way. Exactly. They made it into uh, what what they needed for, for their shows. Yes. 
So, and, and also, so this interview with Starlog has, this issue with Starlog, interviews Nick Tate from Space 1999. Yeah, I just wanted to mention that he, I mean, later on, way after this, he was on Star Trek. He was on two episodes. Mm-hmm. He played, let's see, Durgo on The Next Generation on, on Final Mission. Mm-hmm. And then he was in the DS9 episode where, you know, where Bashir was undercover and that he made friends with that other guy that was the leader of his own cell. That that was Nick Tate. So that was that was just That's neat. a great to have a crossover, Space nineteen ninety nine and Trek. Yes, yes, and he played two great parts really. Close out by going over some unique classifieds. Communicators, tricorders, phasers, with electronics. Send self addressed stamp envelope to Starfleet Command in Burbank, California. Space Shuttle Enterprise Pin. Send 275 to American Space Institute, Santa Ana, California. New Fantasy Shop. Chicago, Illinois. The first Chicago Star Trek Center. Posters, tribbles, stills, models, film clips, uniforms, and more. The incredible Star Trek book is Trek Facts. Photos, art, $2.50. Big 17 by 22 inch Spock poster, $2. Movie house in Miami, Florida. So everything was so cheap back then. <laughs> <laughs> we gotta go back in time. And not all of that stuff is, has um, actually survived to today, right? I mean, you don't those see those companies. Not some of those things. Nope. Great issue though. Thanks for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button. And join our Facebook group. Live long and may the force be with you. Nanu Nanu. This show is brought to you by Hollow Sweet Media. Computer. List other available Hollow Sweet Media programs. Loading Hollow Sweet Preview Program for Blast Shield, a Star Trek Lower Decks podcast. And she starts swinging it in. A ridiculously reckless way that is so over the top that I was laughing out loud and it's putting a smile on my face. I know you were laughing. I really related to that moment. (laughs) You know I get over the top. It was. uh, I just think it gives a good idea at her and the way they cut around it. It's so close in her face. You're like, oh my god, she's crazy. And then we get the moment where she just slices into his leg and it's very graphic. It's detail. You see the muscle, like the different muscles torn. You can see the yeah. Oh my goodness. Yes. I think you see bone as well. Loading Hollow Sweet Preview Program for There Are Four Questions, a Star Trek Spotlight podcast. I always thought I was special that I knew that the theme came from the end of, of the original motion picture. Like, I thought nobody knew that but me. <laughs> and of course, that was dumb to think. But that was, and that was the thing that, that always really sort of stuck with me. So in getting to, in getting to work on Discovery, it was you know, really, really an amazing experience for me and an amazing thought to be able to start working in this world of this kind of narrative. But when when I talked to Alex about doing um, Picard, it was on a whole nother level of, of connection for me. Computer, deactivate Holosuite.